Well, the season of Advent is upon us, in case you didn't get that message. And here we are in the Old Testament, where the hope, where the anticipation and the promise of Christmas abounds. What we are reading this morning occurred 930 years, let's make it an even millennium, 1,000 years before the multitude of the heavenly hosts declared glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. On the wall behind me, you should see a map right now, and you see Gath, and you see Jerusalem. 50 miles apart, about 30 clicks. No, 50 clicks, about 30 miles apart. And Gath is where we are situated right now in our text this morning. Jerusalem, of course, is the hub and the big center of what we would call the capital of Christmas, if you will. But for all intents and purposes, when you think of the grand scheme of things in the world, where we are at in the Old Testament this morning is essentially ground zero when it comes to Christmas. This past week, uh, you know, Barb and I, we dumped our uh, cable about a year ago and cut our bill in half. And uh, so now we're stuck streaming Everything We get a few live channels, but basically uh, we do everything streaming. And so, you know, it becomes a challenge trying to figure out what to watch. And, uh, you know, you, you, you chance it and you play something and you get about 10 minutes into it and you say, yeah, click, trash, boom, get rid of that. But we've really kind of settled on right now uh, Hawaii Five-0. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I don't mean the old Hawaii Five-0, which we tried. I mean, I used to watch that as a kid and loved it. We put on the first episode of the original Hawaii Five-0. And I'm going, are you kidding? We watched this and liked it? Well, the new Hawaii Five-0, baby. Oh, yeah. Of course, I'm not recommending it. I learned a long time ago, as a Christian in leadership, you don't ever recommend anything for viewing, because no matter what it is, somebody will be offended and you'll hear about it. So, I don't recommend it. There you go. At any rate, Watching the episodes, and this has happened now several times as we're into about, I don't know, season four, what have you, is that the creator, and I use that word pointedly, meaning the writers or whoever, the producers, I don't know that whole theatrical scene and who does what, but we'll call it the writers and basically the creators of each scene, sometimes, as they did recently, resorts to this mechanism called flashback. So the opening scene for this, this episode I'm thinking about, about Hawaii Five O, has McGarrett and his team rushing in. I mean, it just, it starts like this. Boom, open. And here they are. They're all in their position, you know, with their guns. And they're going in to storm this warehouse because they had a tip that there was this huge arms trade going on in this warehouse. And so they bust into the doors and they're all in there, you know, they're Kevlar and everything. And they're in there. And it's an absolutely vacant warehouse. I hear chippets, chippets croaking in the background. That's how bad it was in that warehouse. Not even the crickets would stay around. So anyway, then right when you, you know, you're there kind of like, oh, okay, that was a big fizzle. Up on the screen comes 24 hours earlier. 
You're like, oh, okay. So now it ends, and you go back to they're in Hawaii, and they're kind of kicking around and all that good stuff. Because now you're going to get a background. And by using this particular technique called flashback, we are given important information and details that are going to help us and enrich us concerning the episode that we started off with, with this huge bang and didn't make any sense because we had no context or information to set that up. But now we do. And then at the end of the story, the writers, of course, tie everything all back together again. And you have usually a happy ending in theaters. Whether we're talking about movies, we're talking about televisions, or we're talking about the writer of books, man is able to play God, having the luxury of existing outside of the story, being timeless, and being, in a sense, omniscient. Because, after all, you're writing it as it happens, you've got to know what's going to happen and everything else. So, in that sense, you are outside the story, being timeless, and you are omniscient. My favorite It may be my number one. I'm not sure. That's hard. But one of my top favorite non-Christmas Christmas movies is A Muppet Christmas Carol. I'm serious. Okay? And I get such a kick... You know, out of, out of Muppet writer's humor, right? Cause a lot of it goes over kids' heads and everything else. It's kind of hysterical. But in the Muppet Christmas Carol, if you've seen it, you know, Gonzo is the narrator of what is Dickens' classic story, A Christmas Carol. And then, of course, his sidekick is who? Rizzo the Rat, of course. And so Rizzo the Rat, as the story progresses, he gets increasingly baffled by the fact that Gonzo, in narrating his story, knows what's going to happen before it happens. And at one point, my absolute favorite line in the whole movie, Rizzo in one of these annoyed uh, situations says to Gonzo after he predicts the future, says, well, hoity-toity, Mr. God likes smarty pants, because he's got omniscience writing the story. Anyway, wow, that was a lot of wasted time on that, but shows you how much I, I enjoy that. All right, but that's that's all just entertainment. In the Bible, we are reading the histories of mankind. And those histories take place in space and time. And where God so chooses, we are privy to God's interaction with mankind, having both the advantage of timelessness, God being outside of time, as well as God having, by character, omniscience, which is knowing all things at once. So when viewing the history of the human race from that particular vantage point, it's easier to understand some of the difficult concepts of Scripture. When the Bible declares, for example, in Psalm 90, verse 4, For a thousand years in your sight, O Lord, are like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night. And this timeless attribute of God is accentuated by Peter in the New Testament as he writes, But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. Now, what do we do with this kind of an introduction? What does it have to do with anything? Well, last week, if you were here, Pastor Ben was up front here and bringing the word to us, and he took our attention all the way back to Eden, reminding us that God's plan for the redemption of mankind begins 
in real time with the long-awaited prophecies of the coming Redeemer at the Incarnation, which was already established in the mind of God before Adam and Eve made a Redeemer necessary. And I used those words very precisely and pointedly. If you didn't notice those words when we're thinking about a God who is outside of time, who is all-knowing and omniscient, they get cumbersome. Because God is outside of time. And because of that, it eliminates the legitimate use of such words that are pinned to or hinged to elements of time. Words like begins or real time, long awaited, the coming, already and before. And this God in the eternal present is the God who makes sense of our history much deeper than just reading about some old dead dudes to quote the master historians, William S. Preston and Ted Theodore Logan. Yeah, I can tell who the old guys are and who the younger guys or the hip guys are. Bill and Ted's, never mind, forget it. It's the season of Advent, have I said that? And we want to celebrate that. For we who are bound by time, We live by seconds, we live by moments, we live by seasons, which God has ordained being good for mankind. Now, in a past message, and this goes back probably, I don't know, four, five, six weeks, but I'm sure you all will remember it. I noted that the fundamental difference between David and Saul was that David had a living relationship with the living God where Saul had a ceremonial relationship with God. He had a religious relationship with God, going through the motions of religious ritual. But no one can deny that Saul was spiritual. And I believe that people use that today as a euphemism for being godless and feeling good about it. To the wayward Saul, the sacred sacrifices, which again, by God's goodness and grace, were appointed portent of the grace of God at Christmas, even while being a thousands of years in advance of the incarnation. And they were all leading to the necessary sacrifice of the coming Savior. Saul's spiritual observances were nothing more than going through the empty motions of religious obligation, not unlike, not unlike the robotic seasonal responses of many around the world who will get religious at Easter and Christmas. In the context of the time of Saul, to be sure, it was all certainly that and even more. When we were back In chapter 1 of this book, we saw how the bread of the presence, meaning the presence of God Almighty, is in the Hebrew, the lechem panim, literally meaning the bread of faces. And strange as that sounds, the bread of the presence was the physical manifestation that God in three persons Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Blessed Trinity, was in their midst in that ceremony, in that ritual, even before the advent of God come to earth. The Bible begins at the very outset, the very opening sentence 
of Genesis begins with, in the beginning, God. And there are several words for God in the Hebrew. This one is Elohim, which is kind of, it has a pretty broad semantic range for the word. It can actually refer to leaders, but we won't go into that. But it also refers to God in the generic sense of God all-encompassing the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because there, at the beginning of everything, God was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In the second verse of the book of Genesis. We read now though that the Holy Spirit, one of those faces, was over the face of the deep. And only a few chapters away from that, we are introduced to this enigmatic character by way of being called a priest, a high priest, whose name was Melchizedek. And he's a bit controversial to some people as to, confused as to who he may be. But again, using that plumb line of ours that says we let Scripture interpret Scripture, we go all the way up into the New Testament where the writer of Hebrews is, is, is emphatically clear explaining to us, I believe in Hebrews chapter 7, of who this Melchizedek is. And he tells us only a few things about him that let us know patently, as far as I'm concerned, the only one who he can be. For he says that he is without father and without mother and has neither beginning of days nor end of life he is i believe none other than the pre-incarnate the pre-bethlehem jesus the son in the old testament in this form of the high priest symbolic of so many things that are to come you might remember too that in john chapter 8 again up in the new testament jesus is arguing with the pharisees And they ask him, who are you? And Jesus says, look, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus clearly identifying himself, not as a God, but as one of the three faces, if you will, of the lechem panim, the bread of the faces, the bread of the presence of God. So the bread of the presence, the triune, ever-present God, as the bread of faces was the God that Saul needed more than ever at this point as king. And yet, going back again still to that same message about the bread of the presence and all that took place, it is David, not Saul. It is David who is given the bread of faces by the only living priest, Ahimelech, because Saul had murdered all the other ones. And he gives the bread of the presence to David, who does what with it? He takes it and he eats it. Think about what we just did moments ago in the Lord's table. Saul has mastered the rigors of his own personalized, handcrafted, self-made religion the result of which is going away empty and alone. David, however, is in relationship with his God. And he goes away full with God's presence and all that that implies concerning God being the king of your life. Centuries later, it's nothing new, Paul chides the Christians of the Colossian church for the same thing, for self-made religion. He writes to the Colossians, Why, as if you were living in the world... Do you still submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? 
These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Anyone can be spiritual, and it is worthless. Saul's offering up sacrifices, again, going into past weeks, often modifying the ways in which they were to be done properly. Why? To suit his own personal needs at the moment. And they were not the least bit effectual, though, for establishing a genuine saving relationship with the loving God any more, any more than the thronging crowds having a spiritual obligation moment at Christmas and Easter. I remember, I think, it's a long time ago, and I was a baby Christian. Barbara and I were living at Fort Campbell. We had just been married that summer in Arlington Heights, Illinois, at St. James Catholic Church. Barb was a good good, uh, and very devoted Catholic and a Jesus lover. And I was learning to become Catholic, And so just, we were married in July, and this was the very next Christmas, only a few months later. So I was a baby Christian, and I was so looking forward to my first midnight mass at the Catholic Church in Clarksville, Tennessee. And, you know, I'd been in the Catholic Church, obviously, before, married in it and all of that, and I was just... Truly, as this, this neonatal Christian, I was quite taken just with the, the splendor of, of the, the views of things, of the ornateness of things, the, the uh, uh, phenomenal gold uh, accoutrements that were used in the communion service in the colorful robes of the priest and the smells of incense that I equated with holiness. And so I was honestly, I was like, man, I'm so psyched to be here and it's Christmas and it's midnight mass and we drive up to the church. We couldn't even get near the door because people were in a crowd, crowded up the steps, not even being able to get into the church. So crowded and packed was it. And now remember I said I was a baby Christian. I remember having less than a joyous attitude because I couldn't get in thinking about, oh uh, yeah, I can't get in to worship my Lord and Savior because of the once a year ticket punching people who are here paying their dues. I was a baby Christian. <laughs> I'm not going to say I've grown much <laughs> in some areas, okay? There's nothing new under the sun. Sadder still, though, today is the spirit of the post-Christian era in which we are living as a nation, where people, and now including even Christians, who no longer even have a sense of religious obligation that would compel them to church even twice a year, The Saul we're talking about here in the Old Testament was religious without doubt. And ironically, though, there was another Saul, again, thousands years later, a thousand years later from King Saul, named Saul of Tarsus, who would become the Apostle Paul. 
And up in the New Testament, and Saul at the beginning, he was also very religious, without doubt. In fact, Saul of Tarsus was so committed to his religious duties that he was going around jailing Christians and even casting the vote to have some of them executed and believing the whole time that he was actually doing God a favor. That is what religion breeds without a relationship with the living God as we are witnessing increasingly around the world and not just with Islam but also with radical Hinduism, which is quickly becoming as vile and murderous as Islam is. So Saul's the wayward king, and he's becoming more and more desperate as the noose of his own divine rebellion is tightening around his neck. In our text this morning, he's under attack by the Philistines yet again. And with the death of the prophet Samuel, who was his primary link to God in all matters pertaining to life and godliness, Saul, in the absence of the bread of faces, the bread of his presence, is craving a face-to-face with his former seer. So as the news tightens, Saul throws off the law of God given five centuries earlier, which forbade the use of anyone to employ the services of or in any way, shape, or form be involved with soothsayers, mediums, fortune tellers, necromancers, and anything, again, that that would at all breach the sacred divide between the spirit realm and the earth. But, ah, desperate people do desperate things. In the absence of face-to-face encounters, and I mean up close and personal encounters with the living God, desperate people do desperate things. 1 Samuel 28 verse 3 begins, Now Samuel was dead. And all Israel had lamented him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had removed from the land those who were mediums and spiritists. This verse introduces the passage now that we are in very specifically and basically puts a spotlight on the death of the prophet Samuel serving as that backdrop, kind of that flashback, as the backdrop of what's coming. The Philistines are gathering in battle formation, and Saul, we are told in verse 5, was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. What does one do when they are in a life and death situation? Well, you may have heard the saying, there are no atheists in foxholes. Often people become very religious. And so Saul, in the same desperation, cries out to the Lord, verse 6, but the Lord does not answer him. And we're told that not only does the Lord keep silent about Saul's prayers, but he also stays silent from the other means that we have talked about in past messages that God had permitted them to use called Urim and Thummim in trying to discern the will of God. God was silent, and beyond all that, again, Samuel was dead. Did I say desperate people do desperate things? 
Then Saul said to his servant, verse 7, Seek for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there's a woman who is a medium at Endor. The proscription against broaching the barriers of God, that means the prohibition, against broaching the barriers that God has erected between the seen world and the unseen world has been established by a loving, caring God who endeavors to protect those who He loves. And encroaching on the realm of the demonic is forbidden no matter how good and kind the reason may be. And so the penalty for violating the rules concerning the occult were severe. In many cases, they were capital crimes because God knows what he is about. But as we all know too well, (laughs) hypocrisy at the highest levels of leadership in any era is nothing new in history. Saul's in another very dark moment in his life, and he's in that dark moment because of his habitual disregard for the wisdom and the counsel of God as a developed lifestyle pattern. And so God honors Saul's desire for independence, withholding his divine wisdom and his divine counsel or insight from him. One could say very legitimately that Saul was an early adopter of the prosperity God mindset. Because the prosperity God is a God you run to only when you need or you want something. In God's silence, Saul takes matters into his own hands as he's accustomed. And he's grown very good at it over the course of his life with Always bad and sometimes even lethal consequences. And so he seeks someone practiced in the occult arts, hoping that this one will be able to contact the recently departed prophet Samuel. And because he didn't want anyone to know that he was violating his own laws, verse 8, Saul disguised himself by putting on other clothes and he went in, and he, he and two other men with him, and they came to the woman by night, and he said, Conjure up for me, please, and bring up for me whom I shall name to you. Now, the King James Version Bible at this particular place reflects a very wooden translation, meaning a very literal translation from the Hebrew. And in this case, it was an important translation that shouldn't have been smoothed out for the sake of maybe easier understanding because it is vital to understanding what's taking place here. What it literally says in the Hebrew, as reflected in the King James, Saul says, I beg you, Divine to me by the familiar spirit. Remember that. Divine to me by the familiar spirit and cause him whom I will say to you to come up to me. And again, throughout the Bible, whenever the Old Testament uses the word medium, 
The King James rightly translates it, one who has a familiar spirit. Verse 9, But the woman said to him, Behold, you know what Saul has done, how he's cut off those who are mediums and spiritists from the land. Why are you then laying a snare for my life to bring about my death? Saul vowed to her by the Lord, saying, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. And then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, Bring up Samuel for me. And when the woman saw Samuel, you have to read this carefully. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman spoke to Saul, saying, Why have you deceived me? For you are Saul. What the heck just happened? Well, from this passage. One might, and many have, been inclined to believe that mediums, that fortune tellers, and all the rest are truly able to contact the dearly departed. So what are we to make of this? As I said, a careful reading of this passage is revealing. Let me read again and add some to it. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, Bring up Samuel for me. And when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out. No, she shrieked. Ah! What was that? Did that wake you up? All right, good. Yeah, she didn't go, Oh. No, she shrieked with a loud voice. And the king said to her, Do not be afraid, but what do you see? Isn't that interesting? Saul can't see anything, but the medium definitely could. The woman said to Saul, I see a divine being come up out of the earth. And he said to her, What is his form? And she said, His form is an old man coming up, and he's wrapped with a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground and did homage. Why did the medium shriek? Kidding. Because if she was one of the normal mediums, as she was, but this was her normal situation with the normal expectation of the normal results who used a familiar spirit. What is a familiar spirit? Familiar spirits are demons that the mediums of the day were used to. They were either assigned to them by Satan or they assigned themselves to the medium because of their use. That's how the kingdom of the occult works. You want to dabble with it? Man, they will make themselves present to you until you can't get rid of them and you will regret doing so. God knows what he's doing when he says, don't go there. If this was her familiar spirit, she would not have shrieked and expressed the dismay and the description that comes forward. Meaning what? Meaning she saw an actual human being. She saw Samuel. It was in fact 
Samuel, the dead prophet, as evidenced by the fact that the medium was so freaked out. Why? Again, because it was totally out of the ordinary. It was totally unexpected. It was not what she was waiting for. It was, by definition, an exceptional occurrence. She either expected her familiar spirit, as I said, or, in the case of just being a fake, as there were certainly in the day, she was expecting nothing and was going to go through her shtick of basically telling Saul whatever he wanted to hear. But she is totally undone. Ah! Verse 15. Then Samuel said to Saul, Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answered, I'm greatly distressed for the Philistines are waging war against me. And God has departed from me and no longer answers me. Because I never listened to him in the first place. Either through the prophets or by dreams. Pardon the editorial comments there. No extra charge. Therefore I have called you that you may make known to me what I should do. And again, another editorial comment, Samuel thinking, so you could ignore me the way you always have in the past? But Samuel said, basically paraphrasing what I just said, only better. No, he can't paraphrase himself. I was paraphrasing him. Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has departed from you and he has become your adversary? The Lord has done accordingly as he spoke through me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. As you did not obey the Lord and did not execute his fierce wrath on Amalek, so the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will also give over Israel along with you into the hands of the Philistines. Therefore, tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. Indeed, the Lord will give over the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. Let me restate what I just said a little differently, though, for the purpose of emphasis. In the King James Version of Bible, of the uh, Version of the Bible, again, it frequently refers to the word ghosts in some translations as, again, as familiar spirits. There are no ghosts. There are only demonic spirits. Do we got it? Got it. Which tells us that they are not, in fact, spirits of the departed dead, but spirits that are familiar with them and to them. So when mediums claim, no matter how compelling it may seem, she told me things only I could know. Remember, demons are ageless. They've been around the human race from the beginning. They know a lot of history about you, about your relatives, about everything, right? Right. When mediums claim they are contacting a dead person, Scripture indicates, no, that's not the case. With that being said, I contend that the mediums sought by Saul had absolutely nothing to do with raising Samuel from the grave. 
Instead, it was in fact God who raised Samuel in a rare one-time case and who in an extraordinary way spoke the prophecy from his own lips, that is Samuel, spoke the prophecy by his own lips to Saul as opposed to being heard through the medium, which also may have added to her shrieking in terror. She knew this was not the norm. This one-time occurrence by divine exception is not permission to delve into the occult. Do you hear me, teenagers and young adults? This was the unilateral prerogative, which is God's alone to exercise sovereignty, having Samuel prophesy from the grave And then we have the added advantage of knowing that the prophecy that he spoke to Saul about his fate came to pass. Validating again that all of it was in fact from God himself. Going again a thousand years up into the New Testament, the writer of Hebrews beginning right out of the gate in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers, that's what we're talking about today, to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and many ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us through his Son. Desperate people do desperate things. The advent of the babe in Bethlehem is one of the faces of the bread of faces, the bread of the presence, God with us, in Hebrew, which is Emmanuel. Emmanuel. Moses prays, and I think it's a good end to our message today. In Psalm 90, which is actually a prayer of Moses, We read the following, Teach us, O Lord, to number our days, that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Do return, O Lord, how long will it be? And be sorry for your servants. O satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days you have afflicted us and the years we have seen evil. Let your work appear to your servants and your majesty to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and confirm for us the work of our hands. Yes, confirm the work of our hands. The season of Advent when God breaks into human history so that the world would see him as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, John writes. He is the light of the world that comes into the world to dispel the darkness. Is this the Savior? that you are celebrating this season? Are you as excited about that? And honestly, I'm going to tell you right out of the gate, right here, this is a cheap shot, so take it for what it's worth, which isn't much, right? Are you as excited about the season for what it is or about what your husband is getting you for Christmas or your wife is getting you for, or what you hope your wife is getting you for Christmas? 
or what you're getting from your parents for Christmas or from your boyfriend or whatever it is. Let me tell you, I get so wrapped up. (laughs) Sorry, I just don't. No pun intended in what I'm talking about. With the trappings of the season, I love it. I really do. I was so thrilled when I came out of my office yesterday and saw Chris up on a ladder and putting the star on one of the trees out there. And she told me to go look into the auditorium and all this was up here and everything. And yes, I know the Christmas tree is pagan and blah. I know all that. You know all that. But truly what we need to really struggle for is to remember that that little babe in the manger is the one who created the two people beside him as well as the planet on which they are kneeling and the baby is sleeping. The lengths that God goes through to show us and tell us, I love you. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Let me have you stand. Oh, Father in heaven, you truly are amazing. Thank you that you have marked out for us by the stars for signs of seasons and in the Old Testament of of sacrifices and festivals of celebration, all celebrating, pointing to who you are and about the coming Messiah and the Redeemer and Lord today. Our trappings might be much more superficial But I pray, O God, that in the lights and the trouble that people take to decorate, even without knowing, unfortunately, so many people doing so just because it looks nice, help it all just to be our celebration and manifest joy of your breaking in to human history to come and do what nobody else could do, to be our Lord and our Savior, that we could be with you in eternity. To you be praised. In Jesus' name, amen.